This is the 1A Podcast. I'm Sarah McCammon, in for Jen White. Let's jump into the news roundup. We could soon learn more about what the FBI was looking for in Mar-a-Lago. But how much is more? And will it be enough to satisfy the public on both the right and the left? Plus, we dive into the latest round of primary results, and the CDC says it's hitting reset after a stuttering response to both COVID-19 and a new outbreak of monkeypox. Lots to unpack on the roundup this week, so let's jump right in. We're with Anita Kumar, the senior editor of Standards and Ethics at Politico. Anita, thanks for joining us. Hi, Sarah. Great to be back with you. Alexis Semendinger is a national correspondent with The Hill. Alexis, great to have you. Hey, good to see you. And Chris Eliza, politics reporter and editor-at-large for CNN. Chris, welcome to 1A. Sarah, thanks for having me. So uh, let's start with Mar-a-Lago. Uh, a judge says he may release parts of the sealed affidavit that helped form the basis for the FBI search at Mar-a-Lago. But that announcement on Thursday comes with a few caveats. Chris, what do we know so, so far? So this feels like the middle chapters of the book. Uh, essentially what the judge said on Thursday was he's inclined to release more of the affidavit that is the – probably best understood as the underlying evidence that justified the search warrant of Mar-a-Lago a few weeks back. This is the stuff that justified why this happened. Uh, Trump and many of his allies have said, well, this was baseless. This was – there was no reason for it. Obviously, the FBI and the Department of Justice disagrees. So the debate is how much of this should be released? The Department of Justice argued on Thursday that releasing – a lot of this evidence that's contained in this affidavit would effectively compromise an ongoing investigation, that it would show where things were going. It might have a chilling effect on people who are either current witnesses or might be future witnesses, and therefore most of it should in fact not be released. The judge seemed – and again, I think we always have to be careful. We're reading – we're interpreting sort of statements by a judge. We don't know this to be a fact, but the judge seemed to be leaning or erring on the side of releasing more of the affidavit rather than less um, and seemed to say, I, I think that the public has some right to know on this because we're talking about the search warrant of the home of a former president of the United States. The Department of Justice has another week until next Thursday, to make their case for why more of it should be redacted or kept private. So, again, we're sort of in the third – I went from the middle of a book to to a football metaphor, but we're in the third quarter now of, right. of, of this. We are not at the end. Um, my guess is that there will be more that comes out. I, I also think there will be a significant amount redacted because, again, this is an ongoing investigation. We know that there are crimes including uh, the Espionage Act that the FBI is looking into. Um, it is – we're already in relatively irregular territory that the Department of Justice has come out and said, yes, we did this search warrant. Here are the things that we're looking at. We, and of course, we're talking about a former and, president. And, and we're talking about the former president of the United States, who, Sarah, I'll add, may well be the nominee for president in 2024. So, you know, and, and may and may announce his candidacy for that race sometime very soon. So we're, we're so in, much at stake. We're in uncharted waters and there's so much at stake. Yeah. And I think so uh, circle your calendar for next Thursday is when I think we'll get a much more close to final decision. And Alexis, I want to ask you a little bit more about that. I mean, 
again, th- what we're talking about here is an affidavit that helped form the basis, right, for the FBI search. The search warrant was unsealed last week. There's so many layers here. I think it's easy to sort of get lost. lost so I want to recap just a little bit. How is this affidavit distinct from the warrant? And what kind of information might it tell us that we don't already know? Well, let's let's walk back even further and just remind people what this is about. This is a former president who was required by the National Archives to turn over his presidential documents. This is something that we've seen with every president. When they have a transition, they get ready. They transfer all the materials that belong to the National Archives. All these documents belong to the American people. They do not belong to Donald Trump. He... Uh, managed to move many, many, many boxes, dozens and dozens of boxes of material. We don't know if there's digital material, what we don't know what it is uh, totally, but we know that there were at least 11 collections of classified information that the FBI found in the boxes. Why they went to Mar-a-Lago is a long-running tale that began more than a year ago, 18 months ago, in which the National Archives was trying to get this material back and was unsuccessful and went to the Justice Department for help. The Justice Department then pursued it, felt that they had evidence that there were additional materials, documents stored at Mar-a-Lago, and the affidavit is going to explain part of why they thought that this was the case, that they had made a visit, they had seen documents, boxes stored, and there has been reportedly kind of a mole, a, a, a tipster inside Trump world. And you can imagine that if that's the case, if the Justice Department's investigation related to the documents or anything else that's in these materials, if they had a tipster, an insider, they would want to keep this from public view while the investigation is ongoing. So what the judge said is, you show me what you'd like to redact. This may end up being total gibberish. I can't determine what you might want to black out with those big black markers. But you come back to me and tell me what you could live with in the public arena. And we'll find out more about that next week. Anita, I want to ask you, you know, how significant could this document ultimately become depending on how much of it is released, in terms of how the public understands, you know, the search at Mar-a-Lago and really everything that's behind it. Yeah, I think it's really significant. I'm a little bit skeptical just from what we've heard, reading, just trying to read what happened um, in the hearing, that we're going to learn a lot because of these redactions that Alexis and Chris have talked about. But it's possible um, that we'll get some information. But see, here's what's already happening, is what's already happened during the you know four years of the Trump administration and the last year and a half of of in the United States is that everything is a political issue now. Everything is, if you don't have the information, you know, that there's something suspect here. This may be uh, completely fine what they did. Obviously, they had to meet a burden of proof to get uh, this this uh, done, you know, this search, the search warrant, but we just don't know. And so what President Trump and others, his allies are doing, are saying, look, they, they weren't allowed to do this. They weren't Uh, supposed to do this, and it's all what he always calls a political witch hunt. So it's already dividing people. It's already dividing the country once again. It's dividing, you know, the Trump supporters and the non-Trump supporters. And it's, as long as this goes on, unless we hear everything that's out there and everything that becomes public, um, that's going to continue. So um, any redactions there are going to be suspect. People are going to say, well, look, we can't see everything there, so we just don't know. And that's sort of the unfortunate thing of what's happened in recent years is everything is 
partisan, political. They're only doing this because of politics, and we just simply don't have all the information. Alexis, you want to look like you want to jump in. I just want to add to what Anita was saying. That is so correct. And that is that it goes even a step farther beyond politics. It goes to safety. It goes to security. Um, what this particular judge has been a target himself personally and the FBI and the Justice Department law enforcement in general became targets. And we saw that there was at least one individual who acted out after the search uh, commenced on August 8th and actually attacked an FBI building in Cincinnati and is dead because of it. So this is a judge, I think, who's weighing this also not just for what can be in the public arena, but what can we do to tone down the rhetoric and the suspicion and the lack of trust about what law enforcement and the FBI are doing. And as you've seen, many people have listened to the president himself even say, oh, we need to take the temperature down while he turns around in the same breath and says, as Anita pointed out correctly, this is a witch hunt. They tried to plant material. This is absolutely, you know, there's no evidence that the FBI tried to plant material in order to make the president look bad. Uh, You know, Chris, Trump himself has called on the, on the DOJ last week to release documents related to the search, including mm-hmm. the warrant itself, which, of course, we've seen. Um, but couldn't he release more of this information on his own if he wanted to? Uh, sure. He Now, he does not have the affidavit. I will say that. He has the search warrant and he has the, the list of what was taken. Now, both of those things have now been released. Um, they paint a relatively incomplete or probably vague is probably the best picture of it. There's some details in there. There was the pardon of Roger Stone uh, was part of the documents that were taken. Um, there was some correspondence with uh, uh, France in there and those sorts of things. But we don't know the details. As Alexis noted, there were 11 sort of tranches of, of classified materials of various sorts. Um, the thing with Donald Trump is I'm not convinced that he actually wants the full affidavit to come out. Because, again, there is a very high standard for a search warrant to be approved, period. There is a, I would say, even higher standard for a search warrant to be approved against a former president of the United States. That standard was met on August 8th. I think his sort of posture, and as Alexis rightly notes, you know, he's he said th- these things need to be debunked and debunked loudly. He said without evidence that uh, uh, the FBI planted information. I think it's very concerning. I don't know that the affidavit will do what Donald Trump thinks the affidavit will do, even if it did come out in full, which I'm with Anita. I'm skeptical that will happen. And as we've said, we'll know a little bit more about that in a few days. We'll get into more of the week's biggest headlines after the break. Remember, to join future conversations, download our 1A Vox Pop app and leave us a voicemail. It's the News Roundup. We're moving into primaries in a moment and national politics. But first, I want to talk more about some of the threats to law enforcement that have um, followed the search, the FBI search of Mar-a-Lago. Anita, I'll start with you. What types of threats are we seeing? Yeah, we saw that the 
FBI and the Depart Department of Homeland Security sort of w warned of an increase in threats um, against law federal law enforcement. And I think that's all kinds of things. You know, Alexis mentioned earlier um, some of the a couple of the incidents that we saw happen, but I think it's it's all types of things of of all manner. And because and that's because you know people are looking at this. President Trump's allies are sort of looking at this, and he himself is saying that this is not true. This is not the case that uh, he's saying, let's tone down the rhetoric, but he's also sort of undermining the FBI and federal law enforcement by saying what happened uh, wasn't true. And we've seen the attorney general and the FBI director who was appointed by President Trump sort of push back on the allegations. But that sort of rhetoric and that idea that this, that federal law enforcement are doing something wrong is, is already out there. Uh, this week, former Trump lawyer Rudy Giuliani faced a grand jury in Atlanta for his alleged involvement in attempting to overturn the 2020 election. I want to talk quickly about that, that this was a closed-door hearing. Alexis, what do we know about what happened? Well, this is part of a, a criminal investigation in Georgia about uh, efforts to try to undermine the 2020 election, to overturn the election results. And Rudy Giuliani, the former mayor of New York City, is an attorney and was an attorney at the time in 2020 for uh, former President Trump, then candidate Trump. And so he's been called before the grand jury to testify about his knowledge of a whole set of actions, behaviors, and, and influences that occurred in Georgia and are part and parcel of this investigation. Um, and that includes everything from false electors to discussions about uh, fooling around with voting machines to uh, trying to influence the Secretary of State of Georgia to find more than 11,000 ballots in order to try to overturn the uh, win of, of Joe Biden. So Giuliani has uh, tried to resist this, and what we knew was that he... Uh, had some surgery this summer. He tried to avoid uh, this secret grand jury testimony, but he was compelled to testify, and he did. Um, he tried to, to say that he couldn't appear because of his uh, heart surgery, and <laughs> and he was told to take an Uber or a bus or a car uh, if he couldn't fly, and so he did appear. Obviously, uh, the goal of, of this inquiry and others is to try to, I think, uh, buttress the strength of our election system, hold people accountable for trying to undermine it. Chris, is that going to work as we look ahead to 2022 and certainly 24? So I think, Sarah, you have dueling things happening. You have in places like Georgia as well as nationally, you have these cases uh, happening, uh, whether it's the DOJ, whether it's the January 6th commission, whether it's what's going on in Georgia, you have people trying to hold um, Trump allies to account for uh, false elector slates, for attempts to influence uh, elected officials. At the same time, you have earlier this month primary in a state like Arizona where Carrie Lake, a very prominent election denier is becomes the Republican nominee for governor. Mark Fincham, a very prominent election denier, becomes the nominee for secretary of state. Uh, so to answer your question, I answer it with a question. I don't know. Um, I think you have seen the Washington Post had a really excellent story. My former colleague, Amy Gardner, wrote it this earlier this week. I'd recommend it to folks. Um, 
in the five or six swingiest states from 2020, I, I believe the number, I, I'm, don't hold me to it, but I believe it's 54 of the, of the 70 or so uh, statewide offices that are up have uh, nominated election deniers on the Republican side in those states. And that, to me, is the counterweight to these suits. It's, it's On the one hand, yes, I think we are trying to hold people who attempted to countermand the free and fair election to account. That's what should happen. You don't get to just choose a different slate of electors because the person who you wanted to win didn't win. That's not how elections work, right? At the same time, we see people who are saying, well, the election was rigged based on no evidence. I can't emphasize that enough. Based on no evidence, winning, running on that platform and almost exclusively that platform. And these are people who would be in positions to influence elections in 2022, 2024 and beyond. And so that's what worries me from a capital D democracy standpoint. Right. And as we are seeing election deniers being rewarded many times within the Republican Party, we are seeing people like Liz Cheney, a prominent and rather lonely critic of Trump within the Republican Party, uh, you know, losing her her primary this week on Tuesday. I want to hear just a clip from her. We must be very clear eyed about the threat we face and about what is required to defeat it. I have said since January 6th, that I will do whatever it takes to ensure Donald Trump is never again anywhere near the Oval Office. Now, Alexis, uh, Cheney didn't exactly seem surprised at this outcome. Um, what does this ma matchup tell us about the state of the GOP? Well, she lost by 37 points, which is not just a loss. That is a wipeout. Uh, she was anticipating that. She was prepared for it. She immediately put together um, a pack that she described uh, as a kind of a financial underpinning for the sorts of initiatives that she'd like to support. She calls it the great task. Uh, she is continuing to be vice chair. She is the person we look to on the committee from the Republican side who knows the most about what the January 6th select committee has um, behind the scenes and what it expects to put together in a report by the end of the year. What does it tell us? It tells us that, as you described her, as kind of lonely in her party. Uh, but it also, I think, describes uh, a force that she hopes she won't be so lonely later on. She seems to be also hinting that she hopes that the collective efforts on the part of the January 6th committee and all the um, both criminal and civil investigations that are taking place uh, that relate to former President Trump will accrue in a way that would prevent him uh, from succeeding, either as a nominee or a candidate, or in the uh, opposite side of it, that it will encourage those who are in the Republican Party and would like to challenge Trump and move on, look to the future and talk about other issues and forget about 2020, not be so self-centered about what the priorities in the nation are. I think she's trying to give them some cover as well. And, uh, and of course, you know, Democrats, she's found very strange bedfellows among Democrats who have supported her and, and tried to support her in her race. I'm not sure that that helps her with the Republican Party to have been getting support from Democrats. But she is trying to suggest that this is a, a principled effort on her part to continue 
pushing back against Trump and his allies. Now, one Republican who voted to impeach Trump but does seem to be hanging on is uh, Alaska Senator Lisa Murkowski. Uh, In in Tuesday's primary in Alaska, voters used a ranked choice voting system uh, for the first time. Anita, why did Alaska move to ranked choice and how did that affect the outcome here? Yeah, I mean, this actually sort of benefits her. She's she's someone who just sort of, well, first of all, Alaska is a little bit unusual, right? It's not like a, a lot of other states. They very pride, pride in themselves very much on being sort of this independent uh, state. Um, you know, she had expressed confidence beforehand that she would she would come out ahead. And she is one of the ones sort of left standing here. Uh, but she's held this seat since you know, or she or her father have held the seat since 1981. I mean, she's been in there for 20 years. So, uh, you know, she famously a a dozen years ago or so uh, withstood. She lost the primary, but uh, was successful with a right imbalance. So, you know, there's a lot of unusual things with her, her family, the state. Um, But yeah, she has one of those, uh, one of these Republicans that has prided herself on being sort of an independent. She's sided with Democrats sometimes on uh, nominations. Uh, She sided on a Supreme Court nomination. She's voted for infrastructure. Um, She has kind of just said, look, this is is who I am. I'm successful. I bring a lot of things home to Alaska, uh, a lot of money, and it has worked for her so far. We'll see what happens. But she, she has the back of the Republican establishment. So she's the backing of Mitch McConnell, the Senate minority leader, and and that has helped her. Um, But I wouldn't totally look at Alaska as the most usual state, uh, the most usual red state. Uh, It is a little bit different, and she is a little bit different as well. You know, Chris, I think it's interesting uh, the way that Alaska is different. We heard the same thing about Kansas after the abortion vote a Mm -hmm. couple of weeks ago, that Kansas has an independent streak. You know, I have lived or worked in five Midwestern plain states, and and they all think (laughs) they have an independent streak, as as does much of the Mountain West. And, you know, I guess the, the question here is, as we look at these early primaries and these votes, mm-hmm. you know, in this very polarized, heated, unpredict- unpredictable time. I think everybody, you know, pollsters and um, politicos I talk to are all trying to sort of parse what it means for different issues and messaging right now, uh, at, thinking ahead to the midterms and to 2024. I mean, are there any takeaways at this point? So um, I would say this. I would say, generally speaking, let's start the beginning of the summer versus, as my kids woefully report, almost the end of the summer and start of school. Joe Biden is in a better place and therefore the Democratic Party is in a better place today than they were on June 1st. Now, it is a marginally better place for Joe Biden. His approval rating was in the mid to high 30s at the start of the summer. The economy did not look as strong uh, as it does today. Uh, Inflation was higher. Gas prices, as everyone who fills up their tank knows, were were, were considerably higher. Um, He is now in the low to mid 40s. He has the Inflation Reduction Act behind him. He has uh, signed into law. Um, He has a little bit of momentum Uh, that he didn't have before. I would say the overturning of Roe v. Wade by the Supreme Court. You mentioned Kansas. That is a place where I think it is worth at least circling. I wouldn't circle it in pen. Circle it in pencil and say that is an interesting result that in a state like Kansas, which is um, 
we would put in the conservative bucket if we were putting in states in conservative versus liberal buckets. We would put in the more conservative bucket. The fact that that initiative to ban abortion outright failed and failed pretty spectacularly does suggest that the Democratic base is pretty riled up about this. Does that mean that traditional midterm trends, which would suggest that the party out of power, the non-presidential party would benefit, or should be thrown out the window? I don't think that's the case. I would say the Senate is probably a toss-up at this point. Obviously, it's 50-50 with Kamala Harris, the vice president, breaking ties, so Democrats have effective control right now. I would say it's a toss-up. That's a move a little bit in the direction of Democrats, candidly. I think the House is still Republicans to lose. Uh, of course, they could lose it. But I think it's likely you're looking at a Republican House still come 2023. Um, I've learned, and I think the the presidency of Donald Trump has taught me not to make any hard and fast conclusions. Um, he... Uh, everything I thought I knew about politics, he sort of did the opposite of. Uh, and it was like bizarro world, you know, he would do whatever the opposite of what traditional political wisdom would be. And it would sometimes work, sometimes not, but it worked more often than I thought it would. So I'm hesitant to make predictions, but I think we know that the environment is better for Democrats than it was three months ago. It is still not good for Democrats. Alexis, I'm, I'm curious what, what you're thinking as you see all of these, you know, early votes coming in in primaries. Do they tell us, what do they tell us about where the electorate's headed? Well, I think it's, uh, I, you know, I, it, we're 82 days or whatever it is. I forget what my count is uh, to the election. So in some ways, you think of that as some distance of time uh, that we have some time to figure this out. But having watched previous uh, midterm years, one of the things that I think about is that there are so many headwinds going against the Democrats that that Chris sounds right to me about what's going to happen in the House. Not just the history of it, but inflation, the agitation among the public, the lack of kind of enthusiasm among younger voters who would be so essential to the Democratic Party uh, because they're a little down about 79-year-old um, Joe Biden. The, the, the you know, absolute flagrantly obvious discussion among Democrats about Joe Biden, please just, you know, stay for one term and, and move on. That, you know, all these headwinds would suggest that Democrats still have a lot of work cut out for them going forward to try to persuade Americans to, you know, basically give them another extension on their jobs. But I was very interested to hear, uh, as Chris alluded, um, Mitch McConnell in Kentucky yesterday talking very openly about how tough this is going to be for the Senate. And there is no human being on earth who cares more or more intensively about the concept of Republicans taking back the Senate. So the fact that he was talking very publicly about the high bar that he sees for Senate Republicans being in the majority tells me something about at least one chamber. And for those hoping Election Day becomes a public holiday, news from the NBA. No games will be played on November 8th. All 30 teams will instead play the night before the midterms. The NBA says it hopes teams will use that night as an opportunity to encourage fans to get out and vote. Teams are also being encouraged to share election information, such as registration deadlines, with their fans in the lead-up to Election Day. We'll have more on the Roundup in just a moment. You're listening to 1A. You're listening to the News Roundup. Let's get back to the conversation. I want to turn now to Pennsylvania, where veggie trays are at the center of a high-stakes Senate race this week. Six dollars? 
Must be a shortage of salsa. Guys, that's $20 for crudite, and this doesn't include the tequila. I mean, that's outrageous. And we got Joe Biden to thank for this. That is from a viral video of Republican candidate Mehmet Oz in a grocery store discussing the price of crudités. His opponent, Pennsylvania Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman, says his campaign has raised half a million dollars in a single day thanks to crudite gate. In PA, we call this a veggie tray. And if this looks anything other than a veggie tray to you, then I am not your candidate. And I'm serious. Dr. Oz doesn't even know the name of the grocery store that he's in. Can you make a donation? Any amount. Okay, I have to admit, uh, I would not have used the word crudite, but, you know, I grew up in the Midwest, so I don't count. Anita, what do you, what do you make of, uh, of a crudite gate? Well, it's not the first time we've seen a politician or a campaign sort of using, uh, you know, that someone else, the other candidate, the opponent, is out of touch, right? We've seen that when Mitt Romney ran for president. We saw that when George H.W. Bush ran for president. This happens a lot where you where you can say, oh, this person can't relate to America, can't relate to Pennsylvania, can't relate to, to most Americans who are not calling it crudite, they're calling it a veggie tray, uh, you know, that have other things to worry about. I, I don't know if that's going to be the overriding issue in this race. It did help uh, Fetterman get some, get some money, clearly, as he said. But it does go back to this whole issue, you know, this one of the biggest issues we're seeing, you know, in Pennsylvania and around the country, which is the Democrats um, have to deal with inflation and rising prices. And the president has been blamed for that, rightly or wrongly. And, you know, this is sort of turning the tables, right? It's the Democrat who's saying, look, the Republican can't relate. You know, uh, Oz was trying to blame Biden and the Democrats for these rising prices. And it was the Democrat in this race who said, look, uh, he can't even relate to Pennsylvanian uh, residents. So, uh, you know, it, it could work. It goes back to that same issue uh, that we're seeing across the country about rising prices and inflation. And we'll see if it makes a difference in this race. OK, and let's talk more about that briefly. President Biden signed the Inflation Reduction Act on Tuesday. With this law, the American people won and the special interests lost. We didn't tear down. We build up. We didn't look back. We look forward. And today, today offers further proof that the soul of America is vibrant, the future of America is bright, and the promise of America is real and just beginning. You know, Chris, polling consistently shows Americans are really worried about inflation. Mm-hmm. You know, what will this package do and will it make a difference for the midterms? Well, let me note that the Congressional Budget Office, nonpartisan uh, organization, notes that in the near term, <clears throat> excuse me, this will do not all that much to bring down inflation, which any Republican elected official that you talk to will make that point. The It's a two-pronged approach for this bill. It will do... T- Two main things. They will do uh, things on climate. There's about $370 billion in here on climate. Uh, it will uh, – and and there's a bunch of provisions on uh, health care. So it, on that, let me take the health care piece first. It allows Medicare to negotiate prescription drug prices. It extends health insurance subsidies. On the climate, it's – going to try to bolster U.S. energy production. It's going to incentivize private companies to produce more renewable energy. It's going to try to transfer, make households use different kinds of energy. It's a big deal in that space. Again, this is a lot of money to be spent on 
climate. It's the deal that was supposed to be Build Back Better. If you're following this, remember Joe Biden proposed the Build Back Better bill. It was a $2 trillion bill. This is a $750 billion bill. This is the bill that was once dead when Joe Manchin said, I can't do it. It's going to, it's going to, we can't do it because of inflation. We're walking away from it. Uh, Joe Manchin eventually signed onto it, which is a meaningful thing in that there's only 50 votes in the Senate, 50 Democratic votes, I should say, in the Senate. You need every single one of them, including Joe Manchin. Um, Let's see. I I think, Sarah, a lot of legislation is in the selling of legislation. Democrats traditionally have not done a particularly good job of explaining what's actually in these bills to the American public. And this is a year when they need to. And we saw this with the Affordable uh, Care Act and Barack Obama. He he has said – after his presidency, he said he didn't do a good job of selling that bill to the American public. He just assumed they would know what was in it. Joe Biden is set to give a speech post-Labor Day uh, outlining sort of the fundamentals of the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, you have uh, th- uh, 35 visits by in 23 states by cabinet officials this month alone to try to sell the bill. Uh, you will see Joe Biden out on the road in places like Pennsylvania, in places like uh, North Carolina, in places that have uh, Senate races, trying to use this as a way to say Democrats are fighting uh, the good fight on inflation and on the economy. Will it work? You know, I, I continue to go back to what Alexis mentioned, which is historical trends are historical trends for a reason. Yes, there are times that uh, history does not prove predictive. In the 2002 midterm elections, uh, Republicans actually gained seats. Uh, in, but that was a historical in that it was after the September 11th, 2001 terrorist attacks. There was a rally around the flag element to it. George W. Bush was extremely popular. Barring that sort of cataclysmic event, typically presidents, parties, particularly in the House, lose a significant number of seats especially when that president is under 50% approval, which Joe Biden is, even though he's marginally better right now. I tend to think history is a good predictor of what will happen in future. So, and we will know soon enough. We've in got just a few 80 months. days to yeah. find out. Yeah, but well, it's it's in the selling, and I think that's really important. They've got to get out and sell it. Most people, if you if you poll them, do not know what is in this bill right now. I do want to move away from politics for a second. Well, only sort of because everything is political. <laughs> Earlier this week, the CDC director, Rochelle Walensky, announced the agency was hitting a reset. You know, this comes after falling short in its response to COVID-19 and struggling with the response to the monkeypox outbreak. She spoke with CBS News. You know, I think it's really important to understand the great work of this agency, but also to admit to areas where we needed to improve. We owe that to the American people. We do now have an agency that has intense scientific expertise at almost every area of public health, which is a real gift. And what we really need to do is raise those folks outside of their silos. Alexis, what do these changes look like and what could they mean? Well, first of all, it is a little vague what the changes are going to be. There's an outline of goals. There was an external report. Uh, The director, Walensky, has, you know, we haven't seen that external report in all of its details, but it was based on more than 100 interviews and really a deep dive into the CDC. It is no shock to anyone of any party that the CDC had problems beginning with the pandemic and onward. Journalists chronicled it. You know, Congress had oversight hearings. And we're talking about through two administrations and probably before that because there was a great book written by Michael Lewis called The Premonition. And um, 
All of that outlined what the problems were in the CDC. Not a great mystery. Bad management, excellent scientists, lots of turnover, not enough uh, action-oriented information, uh, over-focus on academic studies, and a system that was just too slow to respond to a public health crisis. So all of that and her admission of that and her commitment to try to overhaul CDC, however vague that may be, is going to be welcomed by uh, Republicans and Democrats. And let me just add, she is savvy enough to know that if the House is in Republican hands come January, that she will be spending a lot of time on Capitol Hill in oversight and investigative hearings. And getting ahead of that with any kind of effort to overhaul CDC is not only her effort to respond to the public health crises, not just one, in the United States, but also to be ready to respond to that. And that is why also at the Treasury Department, there was also an effort by the Treasury Secretary this week to say that there will be an overhaul of the IRS, a very unpopular agency that that it has a crucial role to play in the uh, Inflation Reduction Act that Chris just described and will be sitting in investigative hearings next year. That's interesting. So these are sort of preemptive strikes almost. Preemptive strikes, efforts to try to improve customer service, heavy emphasis on working with Americans, making their lives better, trying to get ahead of things, trying to also, I think, underscore Biden's effort to say to the American people, trust government, we do good things for you. Quickly, just want to talk about another piece of good news uh, in when it comes to health care for the 30 million Americans or so who have trouble hearing. The FDA uh, issued a ruling this week that will allow people to purchase hearing aids over the counter without the, getting examined by a doctor first. Um, Anita, how will this work? Yeah, this is really interesting. It's something that's been talked about for a while. Congress has been talking about it, but it never kind of came to fruition until now. So this affects adults that have sort of mild to moderate hearing impairment. So it still wouldn't affect uh, children or those that have more of a severe impairment. They'll basically be able to buy hearing aids directly from stores and pharmacies and online retailers without a prescription or a doctor's appointment. Um, required, and they're saying this is going to happen as soon as mid-October. So that's pretty, pretty quick. And this came about partly because of what I mentioned with Congress, but also the president saying that he wanted uh, the Food and Drug Administration to sort of move towards this. And so they had a final rule that that we saw that you know is set to take effect soon. Um, that would allow them to just be basically over-the-counter hearing aids uh, for those that for for some of the. Americans that could use that. They're saying there are about 40 million Americans who experience he- hearing loss, and the vast majority would be able to to use this. I'm not sure of those exact numbers, but that's quite a lot of people. Uh, and the cost is what the White House and the administration is really pushing, that the cost would really go down. And something that may apply to more and more of us as we continue our lives. We are talking with Politico's Anita Kumar, CNN's Chris Saliza, and Alexis Simendinger of The Hill. I want to wrap up this hour with some environmental news, a historic drought leaving the western U.S. high and dry, and that's having a huge impact on the Colorado River. The river supplies water to 40 million people across seven states, 29 tribes, and parts of northern Mexico. This week, the federal government announced forced cuts for some states in the Colorado River Basin, and it's trying to make all seven states conserve more water. We spoke with KUNC's Colorado River Basin editor Luke Runyon on Wednesday. 
in the lower basin, there is the that's where the bulk of the water use on the river exists. Uh, they maybe use at least twice as much water as in the upper basin. Um, and so when this call came from the federal government to do this really unprecedented amount of conservation, I think you saw a lot of uh, fingers being pointed from the upper basin to the lower basin saying, this is your problem. Uh, you've you know, drained some of these reservoirs, and we think that it's your problem to fix first. We'll contribute something, but we want to hear plans from the lower basin uh, first before they, they commit to anything. You can hear that whole conversation with KUNC's Luke Runyon at the1a.org. Now, Chris, on Tuesday, the federal government announced that two of those lower basin states, Arizona and Nevada, will need to slash their water use starting next year. And we're talking billions of gallons. What's that going to mean? Right. Let me just go through a few stats because the stats are alarming and overwhelming. So the Colorado River Basin has been in drought for 23 years, 23 years. So as you pointed out, Sarah, the Department of Interior announced, I think it was Tuesday, that the water release from two dams, the Glen Canyon and the Hoover Dam, will be reduced. It means Arizona, New Mexico, uh, excuse me, Nevada and Mexico will reduce water consumption. Um, because the two largest reservoirs in the country, which is Lake Powell and Lake Mead, they're one quarter full, one quarter full. What does it mean for those states? Arizona will have to reduce its water usage starting in January by 21%. It's 8% in Nevada and it's 7% in Mexico. Uh, the expectation is it will hit Arizona farmers the hardest because they use that particular water source, uh, primarily. You, uh, officials in Arizona and Nevada say this won't affect us, won't affect the average person all that much. We get water from a lot of different sources. But this is this is a, a slow motion crisis that we are seeing happen. Again, this is a 23-year drought. It is not getting better. I would urge people, go online, look at the satellite images of either uh, of the Colorado River and look at where it was 10 years ago versus where it is today. It is striking and it does not appear that there's a solution in sight. Well, and, and this is this is a, a crisis that's slow moving but has been predicted for a long time. I mean, I was covering water issues in Nebraska early in my career, almost uh, two decades ago. And, and you know, I, I know, and, and, and Alexis, you know, we were talking about this before we went on the air, uh, that so much of the water use is, is agricultural. A lot of it is, of course, also residential. And you're talking about a part of the country with more and more people, if you're talking about the West. Where is that water going to come from? Well, I think the question ha is uh, right now is focused on hydroelectric power, which would be a very important um, hit to communities if uh, the dams w did not have sufficient water in order to function in the reservoir, um, Hoover Dam. And then the other part of it is agriculture, because if you're talking about a state like California, which has an enormous Central Valley agricultural industry and is very dependent on the on the water that that originates through the river um, we're talking about lots and lots of ominous omens that there would be food shortages that farmers would have to make an agricultural uh, industry would have to make decisions to forfeit certain kinds of crops and switch to others or allow certain fields to be fallow so one of the things that I think was a disappointment to some people was that the, the government gave everybody an extension on their homework and <laughs> did not crack down on that. This is a, a climate change. We, magical thinking is not going to get the Colorado filled up again. Just another uh, area in which we're going to have to make changes. Yeah. 
Alexis Semendinger is a national correspondent with The Hill. Chris Deliza is politics reporter and editor-at-large at CNN. Anita Kumar is senior editor of Standards and Ethics at Politico. Thanks to you all so much for joining us. 1A's audio engineer and sound designer is Mike Kidd. Aileen Humphreys is the producer and editor of 1A On Demand. Paige Osborne is our managing producer, and she edited today's show. You're listening to the News Roundup. We'll discuss the week's biggest headlines from around the world in just a moment. This is 1A. You're listening to the 1A podcast. I'm Sarah McCammon, in for Jen White. And it's the international edition of the News Roundup. There's so much to get to, so let's jump right in and welcome our panel. Joining us this week, Jack Detch from Foreign Policy. He covers the Pentagon and national security. Also with us, Jane Ferguson. Jane is a correspondent for the PBS NewsHour and a contributor to The New Yorker. She joined us earlier this week to talk about Afghanistan. And on the line from Hong Kong, David Rennie from The Economist. David is the magazine's Beijing bureau chief and a welcome regular contributor to The Roundup on Friday. Thank you all for joining us today. All right, let's get started. So we'll start with Ukraine. Ukraine's president is calling on the United Nations to, quote, ensure the security of Ukraine's Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. Military equipment and personnel should be withdrawn from the plant. The area needs to be demilitarized. And we must tell it as it is. Any potential damage to Zaporizhia is suicide. Those comments from the U.N. Secretary General were made on the first day of his visit to Ukraine. Now, Europe's largest nuclear power station has been occupied by Russia since March. And earlier today, the BBC quoted a Ukrainian official who said Russia is now planning to disconnect energy produced there from the Ukrainian power system. Jack, I'll start with you. Concern over the safety of this plant obviously isn't new. But what is driving this renewed focus? The Russian plans right now. So you see Emmanuel Macron this morning, even the the first Western leader to get on the phone with Putin, one of the only lifelines there to actually push the Russians to get UN inspectors into the plant. While the Russians have said they're open to that, they've been intractable. And and that's kind of the concern here, just that the Russians are giving lip service to the idea that they're going to work on this problem while simultaneously basically shunting inside the inspections, locking down the plant. We're hearing reports this morning of vehicles potentially inside the plant to prepare for that disconnection, only two of the six reactors working. So when you're talking about a plan of that size, a meltdown potentially of that size, it's it's just imperative that people get in as soon as possible. And just to put a finer point on it, I mean, what would be the impact of that disconnection? Very significant, potentially. I mean, when you're talking about a, a place like Zaporizhia that has cooling systems, right, that that need to cool down this nuclear liquid. If they can't do that and there is actually damage to those, that could be a significant meltdown. And and a meltdown of of this potential would certainly be felt outside of Ukraine's borders. On Sunday, CBS News foreign correspondent Charlie Daggett reported on shelling that was coming from inside the nuclear plant and hitting nearby neighborhoods. This is just one apartment destroyed in the bombardment. Residents here tell us They only have about seven seconds from the time of launch at the nuclear power plant to impact. No time for an air raid siren. No time to take shelter. It's hard not to hear that. And what Jack was just talking about without thinking about Chernobyl, uh, you know, the legacy of, of that horrible disaster in the north of Ukraine. How certain can we be, Jane, about the claims being made that Russia is using the plant as a military base and launching attacks from there? 
a lot of this is going to come down to precedent. I mean, in terms of in terms of Russia's claims of anything throughout this war, claims that they were even going to begin this war, where's the credibility there? I think, given the widespread evidence of war crimes, therefore showing the Russian military and Russian government's willingness to break the laws of war, I think that sets a precedent for this this situation here. Of course, this is incredibly dangerous because of the potential for nuclear fallout. So, I mean, given the, the, the events over since February, since the invasion, it's it's very clear that, that Russian claims cannot be taken at face value. But I do think that in terms of using any kind of shield from which to launch attacks, I mean, there have been many discussions and accusations leveled uh, about the use of human shields when launching attacks or human or civilian targets. But in terms of using a potential uh, nuclear facility, that, that really uh, would potentially ramp up the, the kind of cynicism being played out on the battlefield. Reckless is the word that the U.S. State Department spokesperson Ned Price used speaking to reporters this week. We heard President Zelensky invite IAEA inspectors uh, onto Ukrainian territory to be present at or near the nuclear power plant. Uh, And we reiterated our calls for a demilitarized zone because Russia's continued conduct of operations, its continued pursuit of military objectives in and around a nuclear power plant, that's the height of irresponsibility. Now, David, there are also growing concerns that U.S. intelligence thinks Russia is planning a false flag operation that would blame Ukraine for a radiation leak. What can you tell us about that? So in the kind of hall of mirrors that is so typical of how Russia is fighting this war, uh, we have seen the, the Ukrainian Atomic Energy Authority, Enegasm, actually saying that they think that the Russians have been forming shelling performed by Russia's own troops. The idea is to release it and say that it's Ukraine attacking the plant. The Russians then say that the Ukrainians are planning exactly the same, the same false flag attacks. You even have the Russian deputy defense minister saying that Russian troops are at the plant in order to guarantee against a Chernobyl-style disaster. So every accusation you make about Russian irresponsibility, the Russian game is to push the same accusation back. And let's remember the reason that this has been a kind of propaganda focus for the Russians since they took it in March is that all of these places are former Soviet plants. It's also incredibly close and interconnected. And the Russians have been saying since the summer, you know, they control this territory, they control this very large plant, you say the largest in Europe, that the Ukrainians should be paying Russia for this electricity. Otherwise, maybe they'll just take the electricity and send it to Russia. Now, the Ukrainians say, actually, these are very large plants. It would take months, if not years, to build power lines into Russia. But you see this kind of almost game playing by the Russians with the idea that this is our territory, this is all Russian, this all was Soviet. And they're playing games with this place that is unbelievably sensitive because, of course, it's the largest nuclear plant in Europe. Playing games even with people's fears of Chernobyl. It's this idea that they are willing to, to to use fear and risk-taking in a way that their enemies are not. You know, Jack, the thing that strikes me about that, though, is um, if Russia creates a, a disaster here, it's not as if Russia would be immune from the impact of it, since they're right there. What What is the strategy? 
Well, it's it's unclear, Sarah. I mean, one thing that Ukrainian officials have mentioned is sort of what David was talking about, potentially actually taking over Ukrainian infrastructure as if it were Soviet infrastructure, as if this were still a, a part of the Soviet Union. But you certainly have to question Russian rationality here when you're talking about a, a Chernobyl-like disaster on Ukraine's soil that, that could certainly have spillover effects, that you could sort of see nuclear waste uh, in the air across Europe. I mean, that's certainly something that Western officials would look at and say, is is Putin not escalating the conflict here? Jane, I want to talk, uh, stay in Ukraine for a second. Turkey's president was also there this week, and he's offered to talk to Vladimir Putin about some of these safety fears. What more do we know about the role that Turkey's playing? Well, we know that it's very much so that, you know, Turkey's MO to want to be involved, you know, from from a, from a national perspective, this is very much so uh, Erdogan's style is to really want to be seen as that statesman who can try to, you know, bring people to talks, to give Turkey that kind of relevancy in global uh, wars. I mean, I think it's important to remember the precedent that uh, of Turkey when it came to the war in Syria. Of course, Russia, again, that was a precursor uh, to this conflict, and and you know Turkey could could claim to have you know th- this sort of experience and and connection to be able to sit down and act as some sort of interlocutor there in terms of in terms of discussions and trying to de-escalate the the situation. But but I think that it's also important to remember that from a Turkish standpoint, there's there's a degree of pressure there. Uh, you know they, they uh, in terms of playing uh, a diplomatic game. With Europe and with Russia, Turkey is very much so stuck in between. So they're going to want, they're going to have their own, uh, basically their their own interests at, at heart as well when it comes to trying to negotiate uh, with Russia and, and, and please both sides. And Jack, I want to go back to you for just a second. You know, Russian occupied Crimea came under attack again this week. To what extent might that signal growing confidence by Ukraine that they can actually get back the land that was lost in 2014? Well, from what Ukrainian sources are telling me, this is part of a concerted strategy. So when you look at, at the Kherson offensive, all of the the supplies that are coming to, to the Russians from there are coming off of the Crimean Peninsula. And this is an effort by the Ukrainians to slowly, strategically kind of dull the Russian offensive to really isolate their troops on the right side of the Dnieper River uh, in order to cut them off and, and really proceed with that offensive. So it, it seems like Crimea is kind of the second wing of that strategy, but, but certainly... Zelensky has been clear. Ukrainian officials have been clear. Uh, This war ends at the 2014 borders. The question is, if Western Western officials are pushing for negotiation, are they going to want to go to 2014 or are they going to want to stick to where things were on February 24th, 2022? And one more voice to add now. That's NPR's Africa correspondent, Ader Peralta, who's joining us from Nairobi. Ader, good to talk with you. Great to have you back. Hey, Sarah. Nice to talk to you. Well, I want to start in Somalia. U.S. Africa Command says on Sunday, a U.S. airstrike targeted and killed 13 members of a leading terrorist group. Ader, first of all, who was the target and why? So it is al-Shabaab, which is really um, has been operating in Somalia for decades. And it is one of the most successful al-Qaeda branches in the world. Um, And the U.S. has actually been conducting uh, airstrikes in Somalia um, for many years. Um, What's interesting about this strike is that it marks an uptick in American involvement in Somalia. Um, you know, the 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 uh, 
the Trump administration uh, conducted more airstrikes than anyone else. And then at the beginning of the Biden administration, um, they had sort of slowed down the pace. And what's happening with Al-Shabaab is that they're making inroads. Um, you know, just, uh, you know, about a month ago, they actually crossed the border into Ethiopia and conducted a fairly successful attack. The Ethiopians say that they pushed them back into Somalia, um, but they hadn't done that in a really long time. And Al-Shabaab wants to create um, an Islamist um, caliphate in uh, Somalia. And so the U.S. is sort of has always wanted to keep it contained. Um, and, you know, I think we're seeing this uptick because there's worries that that Al-Shabaab is expanding its territory at the moment. Jack, U.S. drone attacks are not new. They've been controversial in the past, of course. But how ready should Americans be to hear more about these types of over-the-horizon operations, particularly now under the Biden administration? It's going to be a continuing theme for for the Biden administration, because if you want to get boots off the ground, the way that the military does this is through drone strikes, is through airstrikes. Uh, and in Somalia, certainly what, what we've seen is just a frustration from the U.S. military very out there. I, I was speaking to General Stephen Townsend, the head of U.S. forces in Africa earlier this summer. And what he said was that as the U.S. was commuting to work in, in Somalia, Going back over the border at the end of the Trump administration, you saw al-Shabaab, like Edgar was talking about, really just rise back up, the richest affiliate in al-Qaeda. And now it has this ground game where it can overrun African Union posts in the region. There's a lot of fear about that, that they're a really muscular infantry force. And so what the U.S. basically has to do is play this, this dual game now of the training game of getting uh, Somali forces ready on the ground while simultaneously doing the game from the air. So I think that's going to be a consistent theme in, in Biden's foreign policy in the Middle East and Africa. Moving on to Mali for a second, you know, Aders, uh, and speaking of, of troops, Germany's military presence in Mali has been on hold. They recently suspended most operations but are now resuming military flights. How much of a military presence does Germany have in Mali and what was behind the pause? Well, look, this is um, this is a wider story, right? This is, you know, a country that has seen two coups recently and a rise of the of the military in that country. And the reason they've sort of been very popular, the military in that country, is because they're tired of the insecurity. And a lot of the blame goes to European countries, including France and including Germany. So there has been a recent move to push them out. And there's worry that that pushing them out will allow Islamist insurgents, different Islamist insurgents, different groups allied with, you know, both, you know, Al-Qaeda and ISIS to sort of make their way into Mali. Now, I mean, there's a, there's a sort of more... There's a complicating factor here, which is that Mali is now looking to Russia. Um, they have brought in, um, uh, according to, to Germany, in fact, the German uh, troops, as they left, said um, that, that they saw uh, Russian mercenaries in the country. And Mali thinks the, the, the junta running Mali right now um, really believes that the Russians can help them beat back these Islamist insurgencies. Um, but there's a huge worry that with the Germans gone, with the French gone, um, there might be a, a, you know, this insurgency will grow. 
Now, Ader, the, the head of the World Health Organization spoke out this week about the crisis in Ethiopia's blockaded Tigray region. He described it as, quote, the worst disaster on earth. Six million people in the Tigray region have been cut off from the world since violence erupted there in late 2020. Can you just remind us of the situation there? Yeah, so for two years now, Ethiopia has been in a brutal civil war. Um, And since that war started, um, the Ethiopian government turned off the electricity, turned off the internet in that region. Um, You know, this is basically the old Ethiopian government fighting against the new Ethiopian government. Um, And there were moves right now, as we speak, um, toward some... Uh, peace, right? The 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 so towards some peace talks between the government and the Tigrayan rebels, and um, recently the government had been making overtures, allowing more aid trucks into this blockaded region, um, where you know the WFP, the World Food Program, um, says that people are on the verge of famine. They have been on the verge of famine for years, but um, we or I'm sorry for for over a year, um, but. But we don't know how bad the situation is in there. But recently, there's been overtures. There's been more trucks, more aid trucks going in. There's been more money going in. There's been more flights going in. Um, But more recently, um, in the past few weeks, um, those talks don't seem to be going very well. In fact, um, the Tigrayan rebels say that the Ethiopian government are launching uh, probing attacks. And there's a fear Um, that we're headed toward full-scale war again in Ethiopia. And I think um, the the chief of the WHO, who is Tigrayan himself, um, was just saying that no one is paying attention to this crisis. And this is a crisis that is affecting millions of people who have been in literal darkness for over a year now. Um, And he said that there's only one way to explain this, and that's racism, that the world doesn't care about what's happening in Ethiopia because of the color of the skin of the people who live there. Um, Ader, I also want to move on to the presidential election in Kenya while we have you here. That race 10 days ago was between Deputy President William Ruto and longtime opposition leader Raila Odinga. And this week, the head of a fractured election commission said Ruto had won. But Odinga says he will challenge those results. So what what's going to happen next? Oh, that that's that is the huge question. Right. Um, I think. What's interesting is that this election started as Kenya's most transparent election ever since independence. Uh, People voted and the Electoral Commission actually put online, they threw the results, the raw results of 46,000 polling stations online. And then it all fell apart. In between when that happened and when results were announced, there were allegations of rigging. When they announced, right before they announced results, three, uh, four of the three commissioners um, actually left the main tallying center and said they could not stand by the results because they were, quote, opaque. Um, and then the main commissioner decided to move along and declare the results. And right before he did, a senator jumped on stage and attacked him. And then a, a mob jumped on stage and began beating the other commissioners with chairs. Um, so 
you know, where are we now? There was a little bit of violence on the day uh, that results were announced. Um, you know, we saw at least one woman who was killed in the violence. Um, and then there were reports of at least a few others. Um, the longtime opposition leader who has actually contested the results of the last four elections here in Kenya um, says he will use all legal and constitutional means to fight this. And I think we're all left at a loss as to what exactly that means. Will he send his people on the streets, which usually mean violence, or will he take it to the constitutional court? We don't know. But what I can tell you is the people on the streets just want this to be over. Like a lot of people in the world, they are having a really tough time. They are, you know, dealing with high inflation, high unemployment, um, and they really just want to get back to normal life. And David Rennie, if you could just remind us who Ruto and Odinga are, who, what do they represent for Kenyans? Well, it's one of the sort of fascinating aspects of this story is, you know, it's easy to get depressed about another contested election, claims of, of vote rigging, other people saying it's actually, you know, it, it, this, these allegations are not as serious as they are. Our correspondent in Kenya for The Economist made the really interesting point that actually, in some ways, this is a step forward, a big step forward for Kenyan politics, which has been marred for so long by people voting along tribal lines or appeals to people to vote along tribal lines. And of course, those tribal appeals have led to, to, to serious violence in some previous elections. William Ruto, the good news is that he hasn't been running on tribal lines. And in fact, he won a lot of his votes uh, from the Kikuyu uh, uh, sort of ethnicity, which is the largest in Kenya, which is not his own, which is in fact that of the, the other guy, the, the outgoing president. The bad news is that he did this by making a kind of populist class appeal. Uh, and so he's really running as very interesting kind of echoes of someone like Narendra Modi in India, someone like uh, Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil. He's been compared to both of them because he's been sort of running as a sort of a, a, a very rich man who is very poor child in a village who sort of grew up selling chicken at, at, you know, in his evenings from school to make money to truck drivers He's talked about how he can drain the swamp. He can sort of end corruption in Kenya because he's, he doesn't come from these elite political families because his opponent, Royal Odinga, is the son of a former vice president and was endorsed by the outgoing president, who's the son of Kenya's first president, uh, the Kenyatta family, the great political dynasty. So we're seeing class conflict and sort of populism, as you've seen in places like India or Brazil, replacing tribal appeals. So it's a kind of glass half full Half empty, half empty as to whether this represents a step forward. But William Russo, the, we think the winner, he clearly has a record of populist appeals. He also has a record of being involved and accused of violence during previous elections, uh, which he was actually put on trial and, and then the trial was abandoned by this National Criminal Court. I think you can see the stakes here that we see the Americans sending Senator Chris Coons of Delaware, one of Joe Biden's oldest and closest friends in politics, to Kenya today to see both uh, the presumed winner, William Ruto, and his defeated rival, Raila Odinga, to talk about the value of democracy in America and Kenya's work on promoting values, because Kenya is an important place in a very unstable, dangerous part of the world. We've got to say goodbye to Ader, but thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Sarah.
It's been good having you. Uh, David, I want to go back to you for just a moment. You know, the U.S. and Taiwan announced this week they'll hold trade talks before the end of the year. China sees this as further provocation from the U.S. after House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan early this month. That visit, of course, led to aggressive Chinese military drills around Taiwan. So, David, who is going to back down in this situation, the U.S. or China? Actually, although China did say that it didn't like the idea of anything that makes Taiwan sound like a country, announcing talks about more trade is kind of the least provocative of the provocative things that America has done recently. Remember that China basically allows other countries to have trade and economic links with Taiwan as long as no one says that Taiwan is anything close to a country, because China's view is that Taiwan It's a democracy, 23 million people, uh, but they say this is just a province of China that must be returned to China if needs be by force. And the thing that China is really upset about is it thinks that America, which used to say that it believed that Taiwan was not a country and understood that China thought that Taiwan was just a province, they feel that America has been sliding away from that position for years and trying to encourage independence-minded forces on Taiwan in a very dangerous way. And China is explicit. They think America is doing this entirely, not because they care about Taiwan at all, but just to try and hold China down. Now, I think that's actually misreading American politics. I think the fact that Taiwan has become a very successful, friendly, pro-American democracy has changed everything on the ground. But the Chinese absolutely don't see it this way. And they were furious when Nancy Pelosi went to Taiwan uh, a week or so ago because She's one of the most senior Americans to have been there for quite a while. And they saw this as further evidence that America is using Taiwan to keep China down. This trade talks, it's actually more of the run of the mill stuff. We've seen kind of trade talks before. So China grumbled, but they're actually much, much more upset about all the other stuff that they think America is doing to encourage Taiwan. And Jane, we've got to get to a break in a minute or so, but but the U.S. military has had a handful of troops in Taiwan, reportedly a few dozen, but tens of thousands more in the region. How is the Pentagon reacting to these provocations between the U.S. and China? Looking at the situation as it stands today, I think what's most what's going to be most concerning for them is is the fact that you can't really separate at this point the military security and the potential for the threat on global trade in and around Taiwan. I mean, I agree with David that the 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 from the Chinese perspective, you know, talks on on uh, trade and and negotiations on on further cooperation going forward is nothing new. But what we saw after Nancy Pelosi's visit, those those live fire rounds in and around Taiwan, that would have been, that is, continues to be uh, the biggest uh, security threat. Whenever you see that in those waters, you, you don't just have, of course, military tensions, but you have a massive amount of global trade. And I think that coming from, from the White House as well as the Pentagon, there's going to be a, a very high awareness that the, that the Chinese could do so much more to disrupt uh, trade in those waters. Now, it wouldn't, of course, serve their interests, but it could very much so impact politics mm-hmm. in the United States if we start to see even more disruption, uh, given the fallout from inflation already. Outrage hardly sums up the reaction from both Israeli and German leaders this week after the Palestinian leader accused Israel of committing, quote, 50 holocausts against his people. Mahmoud Abbas made the claim during a news conference with German Chancellor Olaf Scholz in Berlin on Tuesday. Here's Abbas speaking in Germany this week with a translation and first a warning that he evokes the Holocaust when describing violence between Israel and Palestinians. Here is the Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas speaking Tuesday in Berlin. Since 1947, 
to the present day, Israel has carried out 50 massacres in 50 Palestinian villages, 50 massacres, 50 holocausts, and until today, every day, every day, our people get killed by the Israeli army. Abbas Slater said in a statement that his answer, quote, was not intended to deny the singularity of the Holocaust, unquote. Now, Jack, as we mentioned, Abbas has tried to walk back his comments, but why did he make them in the first place? Well, I just don't think Gaff does this justice. I mean, this is a major foot-and-mouth moment, but also sort of expressing frustrations that that have been there in in Palestine and and the West Bank for a long time about the situation that they're in, about the lack of peace talks, about the lack of progress. We see the Biden administration and the international community now more focused on Israeli normalization than actually focusing on the peace process at all. Uh, But simultaneously, this puts Abbas in a really bad position, right? Because he's already somebody who's marginalized domestically after canceling elections last year, triggering street protests. Now he's facing more international condemnation at a time when there's a liberal government in Israel with Yair Lapid, who might be more interested and might be more amenable to peace talks. So this puts Abbas in a really bad position as uh, the Palestinians are sort of looking towards their future and uh, away from their graying leader. Jane, this also turned out to be an issue for the German chancellor. What initial response did he have? Well, from from the German perspective, obviously, this couldn't have been a worse place and diplomatic situation to be to be placed in. I mean, we you know we we know that uh, former German Chancellor Angela Merkel always had made it a huge, the uh, important part of her own policy going to Israel and uh, and and addressing head on the 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 devastating history of the Holocaust there. So from from the German perspective, this has been highly embarrassing. Um, and I think that, you know, to, to Jack's point, this is essentially something that is, is a massive gaffe, although from uh, Mahmoud Abbas himself uh, speaking, you know, in, in the, within the German uh, uh, hosted event, it puts them in an awkward position. But I do think that most of the, the response has been directed towards Mahmoud Abbas himself. Was it a gaffe, though? I mean, David, Abbas must have known such remarks would inflame tensions, particularly making them in Germany. Of course. And I think, you know, Jack is quite right that Abbas is not in a position to to annoy his last sort of potential friends in in Europe when he needs so much aid uh, to stay in office. And that's why I think he saw him walk those back. I thought it was very interesting that this caused a sort of slight uh, diplomatic and political fuss in Germany, too, because Olaf Scholz, Angela Merkel's successor as German chancellor, is very much a kind of provincial politician who does not have the same international experience uh, that Angela Merkel did. And he really blew this, that uh, he'd already taken Abbas on once during this press conference because Abbas had used the term apartheid to describe Israeli rule in the occupied territories. And Schultz had had said, no, you can't use that term apartheid. And after Abbas said this remark about uh, Israel committing 50 holocausts and 50 massacres, which was in a response to a question about whether he would apologize uh, for the 50th anniversary of the attack at the Munich Olympics by Palestinian terrorists on the Israeli team back then, um, you saw Schultz basically glare but then the, the press conference ended and Schultz took a day to actually come out and condemn this on Twitter. And I think that's been taken in Germany as way too slow and evidence that this kind of man is, is still new to the top of the world stage and is fairly cautious and in this case kind of clumsy and blew it. And David, Abbas is 87 years old, right? I mean, the, the leading voices for the Palestinian Authority are not a whole lot younger. Who might be waiting in the wings to replace him? 
Well, if you flip this whole story around, I think you see the dilemma for the Americans and other major Western governments, which is, you know, they would love to have someone on the Palestinian side, you know, who you could start to engage with. Now, particularly, you don't currently have Netanyahu uh, as the, you know, the hardest of line of Israeli prime ministers on the Israeli side. You have, as, as Jag says, a more liberal uh, uh, coalition in office for the moment, sharing power, taking their turn at office in Israel. If you had a younger, more dynamic, more open-minded Palestinian leadership that actually spoke for the Palestinian people, had some credibility and some imagination, you could imagine some way of trying to say, okay, clearly we're not in the days of kind of the Clinton era peace talks. It's a new world. It's probably not going to be a Palestinian state anytime soon. But the despair, I think, for the West is that the one Palestinian leader that they can talk to, because of course the other Palestinian territories controlled by Hamas are basically seen as a terrorist organization. Uh, the only guy you can deal with is Abbas, and he is this kind of aging, uh, utterly discredited, uh, very unpopular figure, this kind of elderly autocrat making gaffes as he goes around Europe. So you see, there's just no room for optimism that this can be sorted out diplomatically uh, with a leader like Abbas as the only guy you can talk to. Jane, this week, Israeli forces raided the headquarters of six Palestinian human rights organizations in Ramallah. What do we know about those raids and and their purpose? The raids took place early morning on Thursday morning uh, within Ramallah. We know that seven civil society, uh, human rights and uh, civil society organizations were raided. The Israeli forces went into their offices, uh, they confiscated materials like computers, they then sealed the doors shut and and left uh, signs saying or notices saying that they were outlawed. Now, it's important to remember that this comes on the back of October of last year when these organizations were outlawed uh, by Israel and designated terrorist organizations back then. So essentially, this was following on after the after that had been ratified uh, to go in and close them down. Back in October, when these organizations, which are you know, unions for workers and Palestinians, many of them work with women and with uh, workers' rights. Now, back then, the UN called it a, a, quote, frontal attack on Palestinian human rights movement and on human rights everywhere. There was a very strong condemnation from the United Nations back then. Now, the Israelis say that these groups were working with a or were a front or had been had been cooperating and fundraising for a terrorist organization. Now, the uh, United Nations say they haven't been given any evidence that that is the case. And a number of European Union nations continue to work with these organizations, saying that they haven't been given any evidence that these are terrorist organizations or that these organizations have links to terrorist groups. So the Palestinians are saying that this is essentially a coordinated uh, effort to prevent civil society organization within the West Bank. It does come at an incredibly tense time. This has been a very, very violent summer in the West Bank. And ironically, on Thursday, that marked 100 days since the killing of American Palestinian journalist Shireen Abu the Al Jazeera correspondent who was shot dead uh, in the West Bank. And we've also seen dozens of killings and, and, uh, and uh, clashes between uh, Israeli security forces and Palestinians throughout the last few months. And in fact, on Thursday, there was uh, another, uh, an, an Israeli, uh, a Palestinian uh, in the West Bank who was killed in clashes with Israeli forces in Nablus. So it's, it's another development in a very, very tense summer in the West Bank. 
The Taliban on Monday took to the streets to celebrate the first anniversary since the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. A day earlier, Taliban security forces staged a violent crackdown against a group of Afghan women who were protesting for their right to work and for their daughters to attend school, firing assault rifles over their heads. Jane, you've spent time reporting in Afghanistan. The country, by almost every metric, is worse off now than it was a year ago, apart from the fact that the Taliban has improved security in many places. How much does that matter, particularly against the backdrop of these types of human rights abuses? And how much longer can the Taliban keep the peace? Peace, especially in rural areas, it matters a huge amount. I mean, civilian casualties had massively increased in recent years before the end of the war. That was partly due to an uptick in airstrikes by the U.S. and, and Afghan forces and also fighting. You know, when the Americans really retreated from the battlefield as such, and it was Afghans fighting with the Afghan military fighting with the Taliban, there was more stand and fight. So there was more combat in areas where civilians were caught up in all of that. It's important to remember, of course, that, you know, the Taliban claim to have brought security to Afghanistan, but they've also stopped laying IEDs and killing uh, their own people in suicide attacks. So, you know, violence has reduced, partly because the Taliban have stopped enacting violence. But you're right, across all metrics, the situation in Afghanistan is dire. So on the one hand, people are freed from some of the worst of the violence of, of the war, but they're now starving. You know, people are, millions of Afghans are unable to keep themselves alive without food handouts from NGOs like the World Food Program. You know, it's simply impossible for people to feed themselves and their families sufficiently. And as you have said, the situation for women and girls is almost worse than any of us could have imagined. You know, whenever the Taliban were negotiating with the United States in Doha for a deal, whenever they were engaging the international community from their offices in, in Doha, they certainly put cross put across a perspective or a brand that seemed at least pragmatic. None of us believed the Taliban actually cared about women's rights. But there was a sense that the Taliban knew to deal with the international community, they would have to be realistic. That has very much so been squashed in the last year. And the situation for women is absolutely dire. Well, and on that note, uh, CNN's Clarissa Ward, as ever, provided some must-watch TV with her reporting from Kabul this week. She talked with the Taliban's foreign ministry spokesperson, Abdul Kahar Balki, and she pushed him on why the Taliban still has not allowed girls to return to the classroom. It seems that uh, international actors are uh, unfortunately weaponizing the issue of education. Instead of coming forward and interacting positively, they are trying to find moral justifications uh, for some of the inhumane policies of sanctions, which is leading to the collective punishment of the entire people of Afghanistan. Do you want to see girls going to school again? The policy of the government of Afghanistan is very clear, and that is education for all citizens of Afghanistan. Except that's not happening, is it, Jack? I mean, this is an ongoing issue. What do we know about where this debate stands, and, th and there is some of, something of a split of it, a split on it within the Taliban, right? 
Well, I mean, the Taliban is just so fractious as it is. You have Pakistani groups, the, the Afghan national groups, and and also, you just see. I mean, since the, the this a this was suspended, the the education was suspended. The Afghans, you know, really got a beat down from the international community. The World Bank suspended grants, major grants to Afghanistan. That has a huge economic impact. When you can you combine that, of course, with Biden uh, suspending the aid to Afghanistan, um, as well as uh, the world the funds that are still frozen. In, in a New York Reserve Bank account uh, that Biden wants to split between the Afghans uh, and some of the 9-11 families. So this is just leading to more intractable talks at, at the table in Doha, uh, an inability to accept the Taliban government internationally, although that's not going to happen in the, in the foreseeable future with, with that brutal behavior that you're talking about. So when, when I talk to Afghan diplomats, it's just it's clear to them that Despite sort of the Afghan Taliban coming out and, and trying to remodel themselves after Biden's withdrawal as this this newer, more modern, uh, more friendly, happy Taliban, it's it's not the case. This is the Taliban of the 1990s all over again. Yeah, David, uh, before we go, I want to ask you brief, briefly about that question. I mean, there's been so much discussion about to what extent the Taliban today is different from the Taliban 20 years ago. David, what can be said so far? We can see, you know, divisions. We know that it's the, the, the Kandahar Taliban leadership that actually intervened at the very last minute. The day that teenage girls went to school, they were told they could, they had to go home. And that was clearly coming from the hardest of hardliners. The dilemma for the West is that the, the Afghan people are basically hostages of those hardliners because the West would love to send aid in. They know there's going to be a famine this winter. They know that half of the people of Afghanistan are surviving on less than a, a meal a day. And that's a tragedy. But if you give them money, this is the same Taliban leadership that was hiding the al-Qaeda leader, Ayman al-Zarahiri, who, if you remember, the Americans killed with a drone strike in Kabul when the Taliban said he wasn't in Afghanistan. So if you send them money to try and help the people of Afghanistan, there's no not there's no guarantee that they won't send it straight to terrorist activities. So you have f- nearly 40 million Afghans about to starve to death in the harsh Afghan winter, and uh, the governments of the world don't know how to help them without helping the Taliban. It's a real tragedy. And we're going to have to leave it there. Our thanks this week to David Rennie from The Economist. David, thank you for staying up late and joining us from Hong Kong. Jack Detch, who covers the Pentagon and national security for foreign policy. Also, Jane Ferguson, correspondent for the PBS NewsHour and contributor to The New Yorker. Thank you all so very much. 1A's managing producer is Paige Osborne. Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer. Matthew Simonson has been producing our on-demand shows. And Barb Anguiano produces our podcast. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, D.C., distributed by NPR. I'm Sarah McCammon, sitting in for Jen White. This is 1A.